This Water's Catch podcast is proudly brought to you by Audible. Do you find that you just don't have time to read all of the awesome books that you hear mentioned on The Wellness Couch? Well, Audible might just have the answer. Audible is offering The Wellness Couch listeners a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can get books like Eat Right for Your Blood Type, Why We Get Fat by Gary Torbs, The Paleo Diet for Athletes, or even The Success Principles by Jack Canfield. So to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash The Wellness Couch. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash The Wellness Couch for your free audiobook. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Welcome to A Quirky Journey. Join us as we share our family's journeys to good health. You'll find plenty of inspiration, tips and recipe ideas, as well as stories from everyday people who've struggled and overcome health problems and diet challenges in their own families. I'm Jo Witten, author of the blog and book Quirky Cooking, and I have my co-host Fuad with me. Hi, Fuad. Hi, Jo. How are you doing? And I'm doing good. And we also have with us today Dr. T. So Igor is a doctor of... Do I say biomedical doctor? That's a good enough translation. Yes. Okay. And he's going to explain to us um, a lot about inflammation, which is something he's written on. And um, But before we start, we thought we'd just get him to tell his story because um, he has a very interesting practice and I've heard some really good things about him from people who've been to your talks, Igor, and have um, have felt that you explain things really well. So I'm hoping that you can answer some of our questions today. But first of all, could you just give us a little bit of a background of who you are, what you do, um, what's your background with health, which direction you're coming from, and we'll just ask you all our questions. Thank you. (laughs) I'll try not to break into any silly accents. Okay, that would be great. (laughs) We get enough of that from The occasional one. Okay, we'll throw it in randomly. Yeah, we're pretty mad. It's hard to know. I guess now, I suppose I'm a GP with special interests, and that's in nutritional medicine, which is, um, I suppose, it's a very broad area Mm -hmm. that began way back in the '60s, where people were doing what they called orthomolecular medicine. There were some issues with that because it just looks like they were prescribing, you know. truckloads of vitamins without any particular reason and so when I started to look at this area as in like what can I learn from it what can I teach other people from it I thought there were some issues with it that it didn't connect with my undergraduate learning for instance in biochemistry so I had to rewrite what had been written or or summarize what had been written and because because a lot of these uh I suppose, threads like vitamin C, selenium, you know, gluten, all these things are like threads in a tapestry. And it was Mm. was sort of like it stopped in the 70s. No one kept writing about it. But a lot had had been amassed up until that point. And I guess my textbook was an an attempt to try to summarise everything in a a biochemical flavour. So having having said that, what what I did was I, I... when I came back from my stint in Karatha as a GP anaesthetist, mm-hmm. I realised that there were some problems with the medicine that I'd been taught as, as an undergraduate. 
I suspected it for a long time anyway, but I think I was more assured of it. So, what, what started, was it that you saw that caused that kind of doubt? Well, giving anesthetics for starters, and I gave 10,500 anesthetics in the time that I was giving that, and you see things that you can't explain necessarily from your teaching. You okay. And they're working in intensive care units, the same thing. There are stuff that in the real world, even stuff like acid-base balance, which is very cut and dried in medicine and the, how the body balances acid and base, uh, I, you, you see fractures in the information and people write what is convenient to them at the time and they leave out the exceptions. And I don't think that we should. So I guess after all this time working in this medicine after straight stuff like, you know, general medicine in um, major teaching hospitals here and overseas and anaesthetics, um, I thought I'd better change it, even if it was just me and a few other people. So it was a, it was a, a drive to it. And I think when I look back, I was trying to think when I started to get, um, I don't know, disgruntled. I think... First of all, I went to 12 different schools in four different states. So wow. I had to self-school myself because there was no consistency in the teaching. So I was always a bit, what's the word, jaded with structured learning systems, yeah, especially okay. tertiary ones. <laughs> so I, I basically was a devout skeptic most of my life mm -hmm. and didn't really believe what my teachers were, were telling me. I had a healthy skepticism mm -hmm. and I had sort of an overview of things and I guess the exceptions stuck in my mind. Perhaps I'm perverse, but <laughs> I was always looking for the exceptions to the rule. And I think it started when I had glandular fever in year 12, mm. actually, because I'd moved out of home. I was 16. I got really sick in the middle of the year, and I had a sore throat, night sweats for three months. I was really mm. a mess. And I had post-viral fatigue for seven years after that. Wow. Um, I, I finished medical school, but it was a bit of a struggle. I bet. All the time in my mind, I remember my sister late, years later had the same thing and she had her, her glandular fever lasted for two weeks. Hmm. And it wow. stuck in my mind. Now, two people get the same virus and one of them is over it in a couple of days. The other one goes on for two weeks or longer. What is the difference between these two people? Hmm. And I guess that, looking back, I think that, I don't know, uncertainty about because I couldn't get an explanation from anyone. They all thought I had some type of lymphoma or leukemia and they just couldn't prove it. Hmm. But it was post-viral fatigue or chronic fatigue syndrome. And then when I started in medical school, because I have a somewhat, I have a photographic and audio, audio memory, hmm. I remember things and I can relate them pretty quickly. And I remember examples like two people have the same type of whiplash same type of deceleration, soft tissue injury, you do an x-ray, they look exactly the same, you send them off for review and one of them would be fine two weeks later, hot weak pillow, a couple of Panadol, fine. The other one, four years later, depression, anxiety, chronic pain, still arguing with the insurance commission about payout. Wow. Or two people would fall at work, hurt their back, one of them would be fine, physio, a bit of neurofin, six weeks, that's okay. The other one, chronic pain, pain clinic, epidural, root sleeve injections, spinal fusion. And I was thinking, what is the difference between these two groups? Like, 
And that bugged me for years and years and years. I still couldn't find an explanation for that until um, somewhat later, as in the last few years, when I was trying to to explain the differences, because I seem to get the second group of people. <laughs> and, and some of those groups, they also had these autoimmune disorders too, like Hashimoto's disease and lupus and ulcerative colitis. And I seem to get a whole rash of these patients all coming for answers. And they, I guess they come for two reasons. Uh, one is, you know, why did I get this uh, and not my sister or my neighbour or whatever? Um, and what can I do about it? Or if if this is if it's uh, if it's already gone too far, what can I do for my children with it? And this is parallel to all the things that I've been doing with autism because um, I've mostly seen cancer and chronic fatigue patients when I started doing this nutritional medicine, mm-hmm. and and that's an interesting story as well. Um, about I was giving a talk on the Gold Coast to some to the Acnum people, the Australian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, on xenoestrogens, these mm-hmm. um, environmental hormones, mm-hmm. which has led to you know things like you know the um, food grade plastics that we have, like the Thermomix, or things yeah. that IKEA, Tupperware, all these companies changed. Yeah. And this lady came up to me afterwards. She said, "Oh, look, I'm not a doctor or a naturopathist. I'm just a grandmother, but my two grandchildren have autism. Have you ever thought of looking at autism?" And I, I said, oh, actually, I have no idea what autism is. You know, oh, can man. you tell me a minute <laughs> more about it? And she said, oh, well, I go to all these conferences in the U.S. And I've got all these DVDs and VCRs, that's how long ago it was, <laughs> and I'll send you some information, like I'm thinking, you know, a pamphlet, this. And then uh, two weeks later, this box arrives, just <laughs> <laughs> full of these um, conference notes and um, VCRs. And I was watching this and I was looking at it. And they were—they have a very biochemical view. These conferences try mm. to be as scientific as possible, yeah. given that that subject is pretty well in the you know the X files of medicine. <laughs> and uh, I was watching these videos, and I was looking at the biochemistry and the immunology and all these things that they were describing, and I thought this looks exactly the same as the patients with chronic fatigue syndrome and cancer. They have the same issues. But the thing about these people, these kids, is they're born with their problem. Mm. Um, they don't yeah. acquire it like the other two things, but it seemed very familiar. And and that also, I suppose, rang alarm bells that maybe there was, when I look at these patients, there's some pattern, a hidden pattern or a common element to them all. Every single person who turns up with some chronic illness mm. has something in common with the previous person and the next person. And I guess I've always been a bit of a detective, and that's where this book on inflammation came through because when I started to relook at the research, you know, migraine, autism, bipolar, asthma, eczema, um, ulcerative colitis, arthritis, they all have a similar immunological issue, Mm. uh, and that is that there's inflammation in all of them. So all these things that have happened to me and, and my observations that were bugging me eventually... Uh, led me to find some sort of solution. And it wasn't, I couldn't find it in the textbooks and I couldn't necessarily find it in the literature, but I found it in two very strange places. <laughs> and the first one was the gene studies that I started to do with a company mm-hmm. called FitGenes, which was actually based in Queensland. Oh, okay. And their test shows 
the propensity for inflammation genetically in a very, in a sort of a semi-quantitative way for so many different types of genes or the genes that activate the inflammation. And it seemed like there were two basic patterns in that. The people, there was one group of, of patients whose immune system would do a nice short job and that's it. And they were the people who had the one, the two-day cold, hmm. the two-week improvement after whiplash, the six-week improvement after a fall on hard surface at work. You know, they were the people whose immune systems would do things quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the other group were those whose immune systems just didn't want to stop. Once yeah. you pushed its buttons, it just seemed to go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, there must be something else going on here because um, in parallel to this, I started doing... Um, you know, poo samples looking at the different bacteria in the gut, the pH, you know, who's there, who's not, parasites, whether the person is digesting the food properly, all these sorts of things, these comprehensive stool digestive analyses. And I distinctly remember one time the patient who had um, one of these autoimmune disorders and we got a result back showing that they had um, a high amount of Klebsiella in their species, Klebsiella pneumonia. And the comment from the microbiologist about it was, this bug is notorious for instigating um, pro-inflammatory states, and it's worse if you have a genetic predisposition like a a gene called HLA-B27. And I thought, you bastards, how long have you known this? (laughs) These organisms... That off this response, and you've not told us. Yeah, you know, like we're the ones dealing with these people coming in. They're asking questions like, "How come I got this arthritis three months after I got this bad gastro?" So we're not screening people for this. That's because because um, we have to sort of wait until there's a real reason for us to check these, and then yeah. look genetically. And so it stops a lot of progress in people because they're not looking in the right place. Is that all is that of medicine is reactive? We're waiting for disease, and there's only two outcomes. Either we don't have a treatment for it that we've heard of, or one day there might be, you know. But it's not about – doctors aren't taught about causation of disease. It's a a misnomer to think that they are mechanics that fix cars because mechanics know how spark plugs work and engine management systems and fuel lines Mm. and um, thermostats and um, fans and, you know, this kind of thing. But doctors don't really, the amount of teaching in terms of the anatomy and physiology and biochemists is getting less and less, actually. Wow, that's scary. Less and less. So, but, um, so, so there was these, these samples coming in, um, and there were other bugs as well, and it wasn't just that one. And I remember looking after patients who had this condition called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where they become paralyzed from the feet and upwards. And we used to have to put them on a ventilator because as anaesthetists, that's what we, that was the only thing you could do. Mm. And the number of those patients who, whose relatives at least asked, why did this happen, you know, mm. um, because that's supposedly related to exposure to Campylobacter jejuni, which is the commonest cause of food poisoning in this country. Okay. And so why is it that one person gets this? Or, you know, 100 people go into a museum that has Legionella in the cooling towers of the aircon and only five of them get Legionnaire's disease. Yeah. Mm. Those sorts of questions were always in the back of my mind. Mm. So 
looking, I thought, well, you know, it, it seems that there's an interaction somehow between the bacteria that attacks you or the virus that attacks you, so there's a, um, a bug that meets the genome of the host and it's either a happy ending or, or resolved at least. So you, you get streptococcus, you fight it over a few days and then it's gone. It doesn't bug you. Your immune system doesn't uh, play up for years afterwards. But for some people, they meet a particular streptococcus, they have a sore throat, strep throat, and then they'll get kidney failure. Wow. You see? So... If the genetics is partly explains their tendency to overreact to these particular uh, stimuli or what's the word uh, uh, infractions. Mm. I mean, we have bugs that live in our gut. Yeah. You know, if you took out all the bacteria that lived in your intestine, it would weigh about seven hundred grams. Wow. And the first person who analysed it found three hundred and fifty different species of organisms, mm. and they all have to get on. Yeah. Um, now the number's more like eight to 900, even though mm. but the diversity in general is lower than, say, 50 years ago. This mm. is what the American gut sample, poo sample study has been showing. Wow. And, and so um, looking at the people who had dysbiosis, they definitely had lots more inflammation, apart from the obvious ones in the intestine. Mm. So just to clarify to our listeners, dysbiosis is the state where um, the types of bacteria and the quantities of them are not in a correct healthy balance. Is that is that? Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. i give an example. We did find quite a lot of children with behavioral issues, including things like Tourette's, mm-hmm. um, who had very low E. coli in their intestine, like zero levels, Ooh. very high levels of streptococcus. And streptococci um, can either just be a nuisance and annoying because their their pet hobby is to make lactic acid, mm-hmm. which which affects your gut, makes you constipated, sore sore abdomen almost to the point where it looks like appendicitis. It affects your brain function, liver function, muscles. Mm-hmm. It can just be annoying, or it can be associated with a disease called pandas, which is about an autoimmune brain reaction to the strep. So. Okay trying to analyze, well, why are their E. coli so low? A lot of these kids were Caesar babies, um, so mm. C-sections. Yep. And what people don't realize of a C-section is, as the anesthetist, as soon as the cord is clamped, we give the, the mother a shot of a, a high uh, you know, fourth-generation cephalosporin antibiotic, a broad-spectrum antibiotic, mm. which doesn't go directly into the baby, but it comes down her breast milk for the next few days. Yeah. So not only did she not get the flora from the, the vaginal canal, she's excreting these broad-spectrum antibiotics into the baby's you know, stomach. Mm. But the, so the other... Yeah. So the, the but babies, sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt, but with a very interesting point there. Like with the, um, From what I've heard is that when the baby is born, their stomach is sterile and it is populated by the birth through the vaginal canal. Is that exactly. correct? Okay, yeah. so... So, um, what, as when they have the antibiotics, so let's say they've gone through C-section and um, the mother's been given the antibiotics. Where would they have actually populated that flora from? Anyway, where where would that come from? They don't have it. Okay, and moreover, so they have antibiotics to kill off whatever um, might be starting to grow. And over the next five, six months, where would the bacteria be coming from to populate it comes the gut? Through from, from the mother's nipple. Okay, right. Um, 
and uh, then eventually from solids, depending okay. on what sort of diet they're on. Wow. Yeah. So that's so the importance of breast milk. C-section yeah. babies have, have, I don't know, 60 times the rate of allergy in this country. Wow. So the yeah. immune, so the so the coming back to the bacteria in the gut have some strong influence over how the immune system reacts or not reacts. Mm. And there was, I remember my first patient came back, her, all her eczema had cleared up, and I said, "Oh, how did you do that?" She said, "Oh, my dermatologist put me on this product called Eczema Shield, because he believes that the inflammation in the skin is strongly influenced by the um, the gut bacteria." Oh, that's good. Well, they convinced the TGA also that this is the case, and that's how they're able to call it eczema shield. So, the, you know, all these things coming. Uh, anyway, so coming back to why the E. coli is low, it turns out that um, there are several reasons why the E. coli is low. The first one is that anything that you take to lower a fever will kill them off. Okay, that's oh. anything you give a child to lower a fever, perhaps except a homeopathic form of, of fever control. They don't tell you that about Panadol, do they? <laughs> no, no. So what does it do? What, is the, what does the Panadol do? It kills the E. coli. The E. coli, there are two types of bugs that live in the intestine in general. They're the ones that like oxygen. They're the aerobic ones. Mm-hmm. And the majority of those are actually the E. coli bugs. You know, now everyone's E. coli is a much maligned bacteria, mm. but it, the, most of them are actually good guys. You know, there's a few rotten eggs in there, a bit like financial planners and lawyers, but in general, <laughs> they are good guys. You know, <laughs> they have good hearts because what they do is that they're a bit like online caterers. The, the deal is that they can live there as long as they supply us with something or do some sort of job. So their job might be to help digest things for us and in fact E. coli are very handy at digesting things we actually use them in um, metallurgy to help digest gold ores because they like the sulfur so the problem with gold in 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 sort of micro you know amounts nano amounts is that it's all surrounded by sulfur and it's a real pain in the butt to try to get it out so you put your friendly E. coli in there Hmm. and um, they will digest it so So the other thing, so the E. coli are low and what we found was that many of these kids had behavioural sleep disorders because Mm -hmm. the E. coli were helping to make brain neurotransmitter precursors, amino acids, Mm -hmm. that are converted to things like serotonin, melatonin, uh, noradrenaline and dopamine. Mm -hmm. And they do quite a good job of that. They make some B vitamins for us, they make coenzyme Q10, and uh, as they the numbers dwindle, there's a problem. And one of the problems is that another aerobe will take over. And so the straps, which are the nemesis of these E. coli, they live in the mouth. They live there all the time and they live in the back of the throat, hence strep throat. Mm-hmm. And so when you swallow them, normally they shouldn't um, take hold and get a foothold. But if the E. coli aren't there to to hold the fort, then strips start to overrun the place so so these poo samples um, were quite useful in terms of understanding behavior understanding pain levels and then I started to do them on the adults and that's when I realized that um, the 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 gut bacteria dysbiosis issue actually is starting quite early in these kids and for years and years, and I was a medical student, Fiona Stanley has been screaming, why are children getting adult diseases today? Mm. And I started to realise 
these patterns. I'd, I remember seeing this three-year-old kid, and I said to the mum, this kid's full of inflammation. And she said, that doesn't surprise me because I've got fibromyalgia and my mother has rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. So there's the genetics to be inflamed expressed in three different ways. Yeah. And the difference was that the child's gut wasn't as good as the mother's and wasn't as good as the grandmother's. And that's yeah. been shown that the, the type of bacteria, and this is related to what we've been eating. And there's one, one really other horrible reason why the E. coli's might be dead, and that's because um, the fertilisers that we use, the not fertilisers, the herbicides, mm-hmm. kill them off. Yep. And there's actually, I can show you some studies to show that um, and this is one of the the best re- one of the best reasons for buying organic and biodynamic produce because at yeah. least you're not killing off the good bacteria that you're trying to promote with your good food. Mm. So there's all these reasons why the E. coli levels were low, um, why we saw behavioural issues, learning disorders, sleep disorders, chronic anxiety, that all. Um, came from a, a, an imbalance in the intestine. Yeah. But further on, as I started to do in adults, I started to see that something had to trigger their chronic illness. It's this bug versus genome or bug meets genome scenario. Mm-hmm. And the bad outcome is if you meet the wrong bug and you've got the pro-inflammatory gene set and you had low levels of key nutrients like zinc and iodine, manganese, copper, selenium, you've got almost a 100% chance of getting an autoimmune disorder eventually from that one meeting. And that's what the book tries to summarise, to show, you know, why is it, what are the factors that send people down that pathway? You know, there was something genetic, something um, nutritional about them, and then some trigger that Mm. set it all off. So, so, yeah, that's it came from, I suppose, all those bits and pieces and universe throws you to clues and codes and trying to, to try and put it. it all together. Um, mm. So would you, like, do you explain in your book um, for people that are feeling like they may be heading down this track, you know, they're heading towards autoimmune disorders mm. and things? Find out what how, your liabilities are. Yeah. I do. Right at the very end is like a self-help page um i'll just skip to it and i'll I'll just read out what what it shows you because i give people this is an interesting exercise doing the ebook because normally when you do references you do a footnote you can put it Mm -hmm. at the bottom or you can do it at the end but with the ebook you can do it on the line that you've just said a vitamin d is an antibiotic because people go what the let me. Where, where does he get that from? And you can click on link and takes you straight Good, to it? <laughs> and shows you. Yes, there's, there's, there's a there's like a summary article of all the articles that show that vitamin D has antibiotic effect. Wow. And and that I think is makes it it's both interesting and scary. But um, so the book is written in that way because you can't do that with print. You know, you've got to go look it up and mm. uh, we'll put the reference in there. But the checklist for things that it, I'll read them out. Do I have any autoimmune markers? Um, you know, and there are there are some. There's enough available, you know, in the from blood tests in Australia. You can at least get a handle for it. We don't have a full set, 
Um, mm. Some of them are research tools, but the, the major ones are there. Do are there any right now? A lot of doctors dismiss them when they're very low levels because they can't explain them. Mm. It's because those people are still under the radar. Yeah, they haven't moved on to a, I suppose, a clinical situation. And that's the thing about being a doctor: you wait for illness to come and then you mm. do something. So, the how, thing, so they basically need to get a blood test to find. Yeah. Okay. In my in the in the book, I ask find a doctor who's sympathetic and doesn't mind exact you know uh, investigating. Mm. I think a doctor's a bit paranoid. Yeah. Medicare has a lot to answer for in this country because they persecute doctors who do things out of the norm. Ah. <laughs> um, they they certainly don't encourage. If you if we, if if we were to tr- prevent the illnesses by measuring these things early enough, we might actually save them a hell of a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, the next thing is, do I have pro-inflammatory genetics? And there are different companies that do this. There's 23andMe, there's um, SmartDNA, there's the fit genes. The the problem with those is that, you know, there are 30,000 human genes, so you've got to pick a few to do a report on and mm. your focus will be what you think is the demographics of the people asking for the test. You know, if they're all um, got inflammation, then you're going to put that on page one of your report. And this is the good thing about fit genes is that it does summarise and collate those genes in one spot. It's the first page and, I, I, you know, I've just found it so useful. Mm. Um, and you can sort of gauge what your propensity to inflammation is and it's quite easy to read that but the practitioners that do are quite well trained they're actually very good at interpreting those things for you and the best part about it is that for each of the issues there's some sort of intervention you don't just sit there and go oh i got bad genes i can't do anything about it that's mm-hmm. that's not true at all there are lots of things you can do oh, that's um, and that's the other thing since the human genome was mapped we started to understand that there are there's more to it than just the DNA code. There's, you know, there's epigenetics, there's, mm. there's the codons, there's genes that repair other genes. You know, there's a whole um, lot of stuff that isn't apparent just by looking at the genome. Then the next question is, what are the state of my fire extinguishers? And we all have some inflammation in the body. It's like a, you know, pilot light and a gas hot water heater. You just can't run the heater without the pilot light being on all the time. Mm. But what you want is to be able to switch it off if it goes too hot. And we all have these fire extinguishers within the cells that work to limit inflammation so that it doesn't burn the cell up. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can get an idea of that from various things. The gene test tells you how good you are at making some of these fire extinguishers. There's two in particular. There's one called SODMN, which is manganese superoxide dismutase. And some people are really good at making this fire extinguisher and some people are really crappy at making it. And the other one that's probably more known to your readers would be um, glutathione because that really turns up in a lot of things from you know, autism and ADD, mm-hmm. answer chronic fatigue. And the gene test tells you whether you're good at making glutathione. But to make those two, to actually put them together as an ingredient you actually need selenium and manganese mm-hmm. which you can find out by doing a hair sample okay. so the fire extinguishers looking that whole question is am i good at making fire extinguishers and if i was bad at it i would make move hell and high water to make sure i had all the ingredients there to make it because if that they're low then i'm even in bigger trouble mm. 
So you're then, saying you'd need to supplement with the. It depends. It's because it depends on what your issues are. You know, if you're talking about this superoxide dismutase, if you're manganese deficient, and 85% of my patients were, hmm. one of the reasons I, mean, I had a visit from Medicare because they were wondering why I was measuring these things. And um, when I showed them the results, that 85% of the manganeses came back deficient, they said, wow, that's really quite substantial that you've found this problem. Mm. And like 35% of the chromiums came back deficient, as in zero, none at all wow. in the bloodstream, not one atomable. Wow. Um, so they couldn't really say much about that because I was trying to correct it because there were really important reasons to correct those deficiencies. Mm. But when I look back and I think, oh, my God, you know, these people with low manganese, what if they were really crappy at making superoxide dismutase? They would not have any chance of putting yeah. out a fire in their cell. That, that yeah. would be doubly... Shot, shot, basically. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh. So the state of the fire extinguishers is sort of a combination of two things, you know, your genetics of it and whether you have the base ingredients to make it. And that's where the next question is, how are my nutrient toxin levels? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like iodine, for instance, is a moot point in this country. The food standards of Australia and New Zealand clearly say on their website that everyone in Australia and New Zealand is going to be low in iodine. Oh. It's Why the only that? government body that actually admits that. Um, and we know that they aren't always the best people to admit things. Um, so why is it that was really important? Why um, is it that we're so low? Uh, it's because the the topsoil in mm. most of Australia has been underwater oh, okay. uh, and leached out of the topsoil. Okay. And we've got lots of nutrients in underground. Mm-hmm. Like if you're looking at zinc, for instance, most of the agricultural departments around the place um, will say that zinc deficiency is a significant issue for farmers. And yet we have the biggest zinc mine in the world. <laughs> it's called Century Mine because you could mine it for zinc for a whole century and never run out of zinc. But it's too uh, far down for growing in. <laughs> well, that... what's underground isn't, yeah, it's not yeah. useful for topsoil plants. So. Mm. And we're, we're eating off the topsoil, if you, think, yeah. you know what I mean. So the nutrient levels and toxin levels, and the other thing that I found when I was looking at nutrient levels is I mean, metals like mercury and aluminium and antimony and cadmium lead have a blocking effect on many of the minerals. So if mercury is in the same cell as zinc, it will apparently it will look like it's blocking a 1,000 zinc atoms. So one mercury atom blocks a thousand zinc atoms, yeah. and for cadmium it's a hundred to one, yeah. um, and that's not that well known because we often dismiss what we think are subclinical levels of mercury and other heavy metals. But if they're in the wrong place, like if you've got mercury in your brain, yeah. the best fire extinguisher is probably glutathione. So if you're selenium deficient, you won't make it. And if you're genetically crappy at making glutathione, the mercury is going to have a heyday. And what and will that one, do? That's one of the fundamental, um, I suppose, issues in children with autism. Okay. That the genetic side of it is that they may not be able to make fire extinguishers because heaps of children have mercury in their body. Mm. Heaps of them, you know, almost everyone I see has got mercury, but not all of them have autism. Yeah. Um, so these toxins and nutrients have an interplay between them. Mm. And 
the other thing that we noticed is that if two people are exposed to the same toxin, the one with the low nutrients will absorb more of them. And it's because mercury, for instance, has no place in the body naturally. So it'll just sit in somebody's parking spot. And one of the parking spots that it likes to sit in is iodine. Hmm. If you're iodine deficient, you're going to take up more mercury um, from the environment than another person. This is very important for fish because mm-hmm. um, if you ha- if you fish if you have fish in temperate waters, they don't have a lot of iodine compared to cold waters like the Arctic and the Atlantic. Okay. So if they're near oil rigs, then they're going to take up more mercury out of the ocean water than a fish that has lots of iodine, and we're the same. Mm-hmm. So if because we see, you know, I do quite a lot of um, pregnant women and women who are breastfeeding. I know the levels of these things mm. are low. So the baby's going to be a mirror image of that. Yeah. They get exposed to mercury. There are more parking spots for it. And if they're not making, if they have problems making glutathione and superoxide dismutase, they're going to suffer more. That's mm. called oxidative stress. Yeah. So and the last one is what markers of inflammation do I have? And we've got about five or six ones that you could do that would be routine tests for that. The full blood picture that doctors do looking for anemia has another part to it called the ESR, the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. That's one of the markers of inflammation if it's up. There's another one called CRP, C-reactive protein. That's available as a almost routine test. The platelet count, which is done on the full blood picture, the white cell count. The ferritin, which is one of the indirect markers of iron, and fibrinogen, those sorts of tests, any GP can order them. Mm -hmm. So between the blood tests, the gene samples, and say a hair analysis, a person would get a very good view of what their, they'd either be able to understand why they have their inflammation, whatever that itis is, whether it be sinusitis or arthritis or colitis, um, or they would have a very good game plan to prevent those sort of things happening. This is just uh, fascinating to me, and I'm like stopping myself from asking a question at every every sentence that you make. It's just <laughs> absolutely amazing. Um, it just uh, it does sound like um, like an uh, an overwhelming amount of things to look at and maybe address. Do you, do you feel that? Um, That's why I start is, sort of linearly with it in the book. Because yeah. it was, it was basically accumulation of everything I've observed since I was a medical student. Um, but trying to, to to understand it, like, it seemed like I, the, the bottom line. The bottom line was that all the patients seemed to have some common element, and what was it? Um, and I guess because I had access to these tests, every single yeah. one of those tests I can order. I was able to, and patients who were willing to pay for them as well, you know, mm. and I think my patients are very, um, they're on the page. They understand that, that something that I solve in them will solve, will help thousands of other people. Mm. So they, they have the same altruism um, mm. and ideologies. That they want the true. truth. Yeah. Perhaps that's, we have the same, that's what it is, but we're all addicted to the truth. Yeah. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And is it for someone who's trying to find out all this? Is it a very expensive process to go through? Because I know the people that are listening, a lot of Clear. them are. Yeah, if you yeah. had a good reason, the GP could probably do all the blood tests on Medicare. Okay. 
Um, if they balked, it would probably cost you, you know, three or four hundred dollars, yeah. not on Medicare. Well, how much the is gene, gene te- testing? It depends who's doing it, but it's about five hundred dollars, five hundred and fifty dollars. But it, you only have to do it the once, okay? Yeah, <laughs> because the genes don't change. Yeah, no. Well, even that's that's a moot point as well. Yeah. But, and then um, the hair, hair analysis, analysis, you know, one hundred and thirty, hundred forty dollars. Okay. So it's not so, too bad, really. I was I was sort of wondering if it was going to be a lot more than that. Um, I didn't actually know. For example, it's four hundred something. Okay. Yep. Um, but. The information that you get, if correctly interpreted, is is can make a huge difference to somebody's life. It can change them. Well, that's it. You know, from being happy and in their own care at home as an elderly person to miserable in a nursing home. You know that mm. that difference. Um, and you know, I, th- I think it's worth. I think it is worth the money. And most of the patients, and I mean, I don't force them to do it, but they're particular. They're significantly in intrigued and curious and preemptive that they do the test. Do you find people mostly come to you when they are desperate and not knowing where to turn and, you know, or is it, no? I think a, uh, what's the word, a well-rounded objective practitioner realises that patients only come to see you when they've run out of choices. Yes, that's what and, I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, you don't get that, then... Um, Maybe it's better to be an accountant. <laughs> so, not that I have anything against accountants, um, but um, I just yeah, have so you many. You have to realise that they've run out of choices, yeah. and if you don't give them more choices, you actually haven't done their job. And sometimes I say to them, "Look, if I can't fix you, I will find someone who can." That's great. Uh, mm. So, doctor, can can you give us like an example of uh, maybe uh, someone who's gone through these tests and made some discoveries, and then how they went about addressing them, and the mm. kind of changes that they saw in themselves? Yeah, it was probably the best example would have been when I first started, I didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. They were kind of thrown at me by various people. My patients have always tried to educate me. (laughs) And um, when I started doing, the story was I was an anaesthetist in public hospital system and I got a call from the WA College of Remote and Rural Medicine to tell me that um, all the anaesthetists in Karatha, the GPs that doing anaesthetics were leaving, and would I be able to help them until, um, you know, the, the new lot of GPs came along? So um, I said, okay, all right, well, that sounds like an interesting adventure. I'm in for an adventure. Okay. Um, so I went up there, and I was thinking, like, I was just going to be there for three months. And they said to me, um, you know, there isn't enough work for the anaesthetics here. Why can you help us out in the GP clinic because all these GPs have left? So I said, all right, okay, I've done eight years of general medicine. I think I could probably handle some of that. <laughs> um, so so I did. And um, then one, I remember one patient came in. They must have realised that I was probably not as closed-minded as the other guys that were working there. And one of them came in with this study on zinc, this double-blind randomised study how zinc supplements could improve immunity for patients with recurrent infections. It's not just one of them. There's heaps of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, oh, this is actually quite well designed, this study. And their parameters were, you know, objective, and they really did show that, you know, zinc supplementation worked. So I thought, hmm, I hadn't heard about this in medical school, but I might just investigate this. So I had this patient 
because um, it's very hot in Karatha. Mm. And the outdoor laborers would sweat a lot, and sweat is one of the places you lose ink. And this guy came in because he kept getting – he wanted a medical certificate because he had another sore throat. And I looked through his notes, and he had like 10 in the last three months. And I thought, oh, there's yeah. something not right here. So I said, look, um, I wonder whether you might be low in zinc. Why don't we do a blood test for it? And lo and behold, it came back low. So when I gave him the zinc, really, you know, tested it again, it had come up, and he came in for a review, and he said, um, "Well, you know, I, I feel heaps better, and not only have my sore throat stopped, but I'm sleeping better, my brain is better, and yeah. my asthma is better." I thought, "Oh, that's interesting." And then it turned out that there were actually studies on all of those things as well. That zinc helps with neurotransmitter production, helps with the immune system, mm. helps with um, asthma mm. um, by improving the secretions of the lung, you know, all these sort of things. And so that was the start, and I started doing more blood tests on zinc and doing more and more. Then I, I, I had to go at manganese and then mag magnesium and then vitamin C, and then I started to collate what I'd found at the coalface with the studies that had already been done, and they seemed to match. Um, so I'm just looking for, I guess one of the patients um, wrote me a really nice um, testimonial. She's a, a girl who is six years old, oh. <laughs> six at the time, and I'll read out what she wrote because I think that probably, here we go. This is from a girl who actually lives in Queensland. She used to live in Perth. Mm -hmm. I can enlarge it so I can read the thing. Okay, this is what she wrote here. Uh, my name is Elle, we'll call her, and I'm 15 years old. My mother took me to see Dr. Tabrizian when I was seven. When I visited him, I had arthritis in my hands and feet and was not able to attend school or play piano, and everything was really sore. I couldn't hold a pen to write and I could hardly walk. Mum and Dad had to carry me everywhere. When the anti-inflammatories at the hospital gave me didn't work and Mum didn't want me on weekly chemotherapy, that's methotrexate, mm -hmm. I visited Dr. Tabrizian. In approximately 18 months of Dr. Tabrizian treating me, my arthritis was in remission and all that I had left was a stiffness in my joints in the morning. I have now completed fourth grade piano and have been able to attend school I think Dr. Tabrizian is the best um, oh. and with my arthritis. And that was probably the first time that I, I was looking at, you know, the, the nutrients that affect inflammation, the, the, the gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that was a very interesting story because we got her really well. Until she went on a camp to, to um, the Canberra school camp and she ate completely. Her mum's a real health fanatic, you know, mm -hmm. um, and they always ate really well. And, you know, you can't always do that when you're when traveling camp. to school yeah. camp. And her gut went right off after that camp. Oh, and it dear. took us months. Her arthritis came back in a major way. Mm. Um, and it was, and then that was quite poignant because I thought, wow, but what you have eaten had such a big difference on the level of arthritis that was quiescent and controlled. And the answer was yes. It's fascinating. Looking at that, I thought, whoa, we've got to look into this a bit more. And that's where, you know, when patients would come in and say, whenever I have gluten, I feel like I've been hit in the back of the head with a baseball bat. Mm. Or whenever I have gluten, I feel like I become a very different person, a very mm. unpleasant person. 
um, and noticing um, the correlations between what you know what we would say are pro-inflammatory foods, mm-hmm. and that was another interesting thing because um, very few doctors will ask the patients what triggered it off. Like the nightshades is the first group that I really looked at, as in, mm-hmm. wow, why are your fingers so soft, so sore in the morning? And those foods, um, they were basically from Central and South America, and they were capsicum, tomato, potato, uh, chili and eggplant, mm-hmm. and tobacco actually is also a nightshade. Yeah. Um, and my patients sometimes would say, I can't understand why my fingers are so stiff in the morning. So the first thing I would do is give them that list of nightshades and ask them to stop it and see how that goes. Not everybody will respond to a diet like that. But if they do, I tell you what, they're extremely grateful. Yeah. I have um husband and wife to come and see me and the husband had some issues. He'd had prostate cancer, which is um, in the same uh, interleukin category as the autoimmune disorders, interestingly enough, mm. um, in the genetic studies. And I told him to get off the nightshades to see if that helped his back. But his wife came in two weeks later and she said, oh, thank you for telling Michael about the nightshades because I went on that diet and now all the arthritis in my fingers just stopped. Oh, that's yeah. good. So, so you, you know, that simple intervention, that one little thing can make a huge difference to people mm. apart from the wheat thing and then there's the sugar thing yeah. um, and there's the dairy and the casein thing and then there's the FODMAPs, the wheat, yeah. dairy, fructans, allium family of of, uh, foods and I actually have a colleague who's a rheumatologist who puts people on FODMAP diets Mm -hmm. um, for their systemic inflammation is one of the first things that he does. Okay, that's interesting. A FODMAP free diet or is that what it is? FODMAP free diet, yeah. It's quite uh, difficult to do. Interestingly, uh, spelt isn't on that list, Joe. Um, Okay. Uh, spelt and rye aren't considered to be FODMAPs, but wheat is. I think it's far more immunological wheat. Hmm. Uh, of course, there's a lot more hassle. There's something about the combinations of the amino acids in wheat that cause issues because they found that gluten would cause leaky gut in all the volunteers that they gave it to for up to yeah. eight hours, wow. which means that other things that are being digested at that time, take advantage of that leaky gut and may cause an immunological reaction. So it's a temporary thing, the leaky gut. You've got 16 hours to fix it. And Hmm. that's why, you know, sometimes my patients, they don't believe me and I say, okay, I want you to try this diet. I want you to have wheat picks for breakfast, biscuits for morning tea, sandwiches for lunch, cake for afternoon tea and pasta for dinner. (laughs) And you call me when you've had enough of that diet. Very few people make a week. Yeah. Very few people make it a week. And that's just that's a mean diet. It's mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Teaching them a lesson. Good diet. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, go just ahead. A, yeah, quick one. Uh, so, I'm really interested in your take around um, like a healthy individual and their ability to take in things like nightshades and gluten and casein. Do you believe that there, there's something inherently bad about these foods or is it where we are? I haven't been able to find out who's at risk. I have a feeling it's, it's certain people of European descent because Mm. those foods were brought to Europe from Central and South America. And some people seem to take to them naturally like the Italians. Um, But there are other people, I think, like from um, Nordic and and Celtic that don't do so well Mm. with those. They seem to react immunologically. What about gluten and casein? They're different. They're different um, reactions. 
I mean, there are definitely some people who genetically are going to react to wheat. You can do gene studies to okay. show that this, but there's a lot more people who react to wheat who don't have the gene. Yeah. And then you have to break it down as in, you know, what is it, um, what was the reaction? There's a couple of things. Um, one is that wheat, it, everyone can handle leaky gut. If, if you actually do, there's a thing called intestinal permeability studies, mm-hmm. um, and you can do them when somebody's fasting and get a baseline reading. And as soon as you start eating, you actually get leaky gut. It's necessary to absorb the amino acids so that you don't waste energy transporting them into the cell, across the cell, and back out the other side of the cell. So that there is there is a certain intestinal permeability that's physiological that's supposed to be there. Okay. But the problem with wheat is that it delays the natural closing up of that. Uh, now, yeah. if you digest your food properly, if that is, if you completely com- convert a protein to an amino acid and that's like a bit like a train like it's got a you've got an engine you've got a tender and you've got carriages and then coal cars and flat cars and box cars and oil cars and a caboose that's a protein and the idea of the digestive tract is to unlink every carriage and just transport the carriages across so if you've done that by the time it gets to the leaky part no harm done no foul because mm-hmm. amino acids are inert. You can inject them intravenously. That's what we used to do as anaesthetists. If you're really sick in ICU, you just stick a drip under the collarbone and put amino acids and fats and sugars into a drip and run it, albeit slowly, mm-hmm. but you can inject amino acids. But you, And that's what the immune system does, I suppose, is convert something foreign to something self. But if you haven't quite finished that job and you have, say, a caboose and a carriage together or a coal car and a flat car, mm-hmm. and that gets through the immune system, the autism literature, which comes back to this, actually shows that certain combinations, coal car, flat car, caboose, carriage, can set off an anaphylactic shock. Ah. Now, that's pretty scary, an anaphylactic shock from two amino acids Wow. Um, so there's there's a spectrum then for from you know like somebody says oh I had that food and I came out in a rash I had too many prawns and I came out in a rash the next day or I had a kiwi fruit and my mouth went all furry and my tongue swollen up so the grey zone in the middle most people might ignore so the yeah. gluten opens them up to the problem but yeah. there's something else that causes the problem wow. there's a combination of things that's why sometimes it takes a while for them to figure it out, I can't work out what it is, and it may be the, the combination. Yeah. So, so do you feel like bread? Just eat the bread with nothing else, and then you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, some people would take that completely for granted. But I'll tell you what. You know, the whole the word gluten comes from the word agglutinate, and if you think about it, if you take you know durum wheat pasta and boil it uh, in a pot for thirty minutes. Um, you know, that's 100 degrees C. You couldn't even put your finger in there for a few seconds without damaging yourself. And yet we want our digestive tract to digest that same thing that could hold under that uh, extreme conditions. Or a free loaf bread at 200 degrees C that, that can hold its shape at 200 degrees C. We want we expect our digestive tract to eat that. So it, it's, not, it's, a, it's not a given that people can digest those things. Yeah. They're difficult. They're really troublesome. And the thing with the casein, they're not quite as 
troublesome in terms of the, I suppose they do hold like cheese together um, when you start to create um, hardened cheeses. But the thing about the caseins, um, you often find a cross-reaction. If somebody's reacting to wheat, they've got um, anti-casein antibodies as well, which mm. we can't do here in Australia, by the way. But it's to do perhaps with the type of casein. There is a theory that when we had cows as pets, Clarabelle, um, someone would go and milk that little cow out the back and would drink the milk straight away, unpasteurized. Mm-hmm. It's probably going, if there are black helicopters flying overhead, it's because I said unpasteurized milk. <laughs> oh. By the way, <laughs> yeah, danger, was, danger. Um, Someone's preaching more milk. Danger, will This is unpasteurized milk. Um, so, so they were little cows. And then at some point, we said, stuff this, we're going to abrogate the responsibility for our food chain to somebody else. Bad move. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get dairies to do it. And they said, right, we're not going to waste our time on little cows. We're going to have big ones because if somebody's going to milk that, we might as well just do, you know, 100 big cows rather than 400 little cows. Um, so um, dinner's ready, by the way. <laughs> oh, good. What are we having? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a question I want to ask tofu. you. <laughs> I'm doing chili tofu stir fry because I'm a veggie. Mm. Anyway, so, um, so then when we went to the big cows, they're a different group altogether and this is where the caseins are different the little cows had a2 casein and their body weight matched our weights better especially if you're american don't know sorry no one is <laughs> the u.s delete that one Quietly, okay, take it. delete that, that one yeah anyway so so the a1 casein cows that's when people started to react especially when you pasteurize the milk because you don't have the enzymes to actually digest the casein when you pasteurize, you kill off the phosphatases, which you need to digest the calcium and a whole lot of other things. Don't get me started on that. So, <laughs> um, so the change, the food chain, the, the types of um, cows that we chose started to create a problem elsewhere as a result of that. So, um, and then, you know, if you think about it, a whole gross national product is based on things like wheat and dairy. Yeah. I mean, it's not as bad as New Zealand. Well, not as uh, intense as New Zealand. So, um, and that seemed to be fine for a while. And then something else happened. And I think it was maybe the fact that we stopped growing things organically. When you think about it, in a post-war superphosphate fertilizers, that sort of thing started. People not growing their own produce. The reduction in the diversity of the produce. Mm -hmm. Like 100 years ago, um, we had something like 100 species of apple available to us. Wow. And now we've got five or six. Mm. Something seriously happened. And potatoes, like if you go to other countries, they go, oh, can I have some potatoes? They go, which of the 20 sub types of potatoes do you want? Or which of the 200 bananas we've got here? Yeah. And here we've got like five, six. They're inventing new ones all the time. But So the reduction in the biodiversity of the produce, that's got something to do with it. Um and then the next thing was the when we m- most bread. Well, if you go back in time to you know Sumerian times, what they called bread was sprouted grains. Mm. And what we, if we'd taken a loaf of bread back, they would have said, Oh, that's a sponge, isn't it? That's not <laughs> bread loaf. 
But um, so at one point it was grains like spelt and wheat and rye and oats. And then somebody said, well, wait a second, they're really quite expensive to make. Wheat is much cheaper. Well, why don't we do that? The problem with doing that is you have to invent a whole new method to deal with that because then your whole um, raison d'etre is to make a loaf that has the maximum amount of water because water is a lot cheaper than, than hmm. flour. And that created a system of bread making called the Chorleywood bread making, which is a lot of work that goes into bread to you get the maximum out of the wheat that you're using. So as you degrade the the types of uh, grains that you've got, you, you create a problem somewhere else. You've got to use hmm. more yeast then etc yeah. so the produce has changed and you know if you went back 200 years if you we took a glass of milk from today and went back 200 years and compared it to one of theirs they would laugh mm. it, that wouldn't look the same mm. it's certainly not white mm. um, <laughs> so yeah it's the type of produce too i think you know that's created it um and maybe also the fact that you know, we don't make foods from scratch anymore. Yeah. That, you know, the processed foods, when you have fast foods, they have an agenda. They want to get you addicted on it. So they've got, you know, the sugar and the salt sort of thing going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that we are ha- having more processed foods and then then we've got to have shelf life. So then somebody said, oh, we have to preservatives and preservatives in them now. Mm. So there's a, you know, this is why people buy the, those, these machines, the Thermomix machines, because they cut out all that junk in the middle. Yeah. It goes straight from the ingredient with no middleman, no uh, processing to their own, you know, better quality food. Yeah. Do, do you have any views on things like like lifestyle uh, things like say sun exposure movement and sleep for instance do you, is that something that you consider with your patients? i think they're all an issue um you know we've become more sedentary and more addicted to screens mm. i have to say that is um that's going to bite us in the bum later on yeah and to create a generation of delinquents i think yeah. um but yeah exercise is another thing that um everything you know our, our cities the way that um created is all around um, transport and, and, and less on exercise. We now have to go to gyms to exercise. Huh. But there was a very interesting study about longevity and exercise. I can't remember who did it, but they were looking at the people who lived the longest and how exercise played a part. And the people who lived the longest were those where exercise was a part of their daily life. Yeah. So they had to walk down to the well, fill mm. up the bucket, bring it back, yep. till the fields, you know, Integrated. this kind of thing. And the yeah. people who went to the gym for exercise had no improvement in longevity whatsoever, yeah. even though they considered them to be healthy. I think that's activities of daily living. Um, you know, the exercise, planning it in our daily life, you know, and you probably read that study about, you know, every hour you sit, you lose a year of life or something. Um, sitting is one of the worst things. Screens turn off your proprioceptive muscles of your spine, so you've got more back problems, more neck problems because of screens. Hmm. They affect sleep patterns. Coming yeah. back to sleep, 40% of Australians have a sleep disorder. Yeah, wow. I mean, you know, is it, uh, some people blame light toxicity, and it's because we don't synchronise ourselves with the, the sun, moon anymore. We, our mm-hmm. circadian rhythms are out. As soon as it gets dark, we turn on a light. Yeah. Um, and we stay out looking at screens and the problem with that is it fools the pineal gland because when you want to go into a sleep cycle, the retina is monitoring the, the ambient light levels. It's a bit like uh, those old meters that used to have for photography, the lux. Mm-hmm. 
And as it starts to drop, a certain set of nerves just above the, the eyeballs at the back send a message to the pineal gland to say, hey, the light levels are dropping. We might be going into a night cycle, so better get the other guys together. But the screen stops that. They're so, so bright. What about I, having the sunlight as well during the day come into your eye? Like most of us don't have that at all. No, like even the sun on our skin. We've got the solar phobia. Oh my God, the sun's out. How will I get to the car? Um, <laughs> what, what do you think of that? I'd, I'd really like to take your opinion on it. Like the, um, I come from a Middle Eastern Mediterranean country. I'm aware that the ozone layer here is slightly different to where I'm from. Uh, but I never grew up in this kind of uh, culture where they put on sunscreen as much. And um, I'm not really sure where I stand with regards to... It's famous for cedar trees? Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I am from Lebanon, yes. Must be Lebanon, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you gave yourself away there. <laughs> uh, I'm, yeah, I'm the thing about, about you know, European sun and Mediterranean sun is very different. I remember seeing pictures of people like in Umbria, and they're out there without their hats on, and none of them seem to get burnt. Mm. And it's it's to do with, um, you know, the ozone layer and the, the, the UVB, UVA ratio and, and the latitude and all these kind of things. Perth has a latitude of 32 degrees. I'm not sure about where you guys live, but it's it's closer well, to the equator, isn't it? Yeah. Well, who else in Sydney, up, but I'm in Vitamin D. I think that's probably a good thing. The thing that they found with, with vitamin D was that you only really make vitamin D when you have UVB ratio around 50% to UVA, which is when the sun is in the zenith, directly overhead. Oh. And and that has to be – so that's the middle of the day. That's when you, your best chance of making vitamin D. And which once is you when everyone tells tan, you not to go out. Absolutely. <laughs> when you start to tan, you actually reduce the vitamin D um, production. So it has to be mostly on the torso, you know, out in the courtyard in a bikini kind of thing. And, and <laughs> for 15 minutes, that's all you need. You don't need a whole day. But – but previously, Australians would spend the whole day out in the sun without adequate cover mm. and get burnt and then do it again the next day and the day mm. after that. So that is a very different – that's going to create a very different problem. Sure. You're going to have people with really good levels of vitamin D, but you're going to create more people with solar radiation um, issues down the track. Uh, so – and that – and plus the slip, slop, slap. Thing that we did, we became, you know, paranoid about solar radiation to the point where now we're seeing all these people with low levels of vitamin D, really, really low. Now, that isn't the end of the story because the lowest levels of, of vitamin D you'll see in dark-skinned people, like I have Sri Lankan patients and indigenous patients, they're all rock bottom. But the interesting thing is that when you do their gene studies, you find out that um, – there's a, a different sensitivity to vitamin D in different people. About 40% of the population, their vitamin D receptors are deaf. So even if you've got lots of vitamin D in the bloodstream, wow. they don't seem to work. Yeah. And this is what the gene studies showed me. That this is called the VDR, vitamin D receptor genes. There's, I think there's three or four. So the dark-skinned people, their receptors are very good listeners. So they can run on very low levels of vitamin D. Um because the receptors listen to vitamin D. And then there's this other group of people who have adequate levels of D, but their vitamin D receptors are deaf. They appear that like they're deficient, even though the level isn't. It's called functional so, okay. vitamin D uh, deficiency. So it's, 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 it's a complicated 
thing that we've done, Australians, you know, the sun, the bronze Australian kind of uh, persona that used to be out there, and we've now gone to the the goth. (laughs) I think we've gone a bit too far with that. Yeah. It's, it sounds like uh, we've gotten to a place that is uh, so difficult to navigate for most of us mm. that, uh, you know, what, what do you feel like the, the hope for the future is around this area? Is uh, Are we going to be able to get out of this or this, is this knowledge going to be only known by a select few who are really interested in researching and the rest of people are going to suffer? Or do you it's feel there's a change field. happening? You know, it really is a minefield because you can't believe everything that you read. Mm. That's right. I mean, as I said, I was a devout skeptic, so I have to read something and convince myself three times before I believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you are you specifically meaning about vitamin D or all of well, the, the uh, all all the things that you brought up? It seems like, for instance, I'd need to see someone like you to be able to get myself back on track, or you know, if, uh, and I don't even have many serious problems in my life but it's something that i'm interested in, mm. in, in you know, continuously improving myself um but people who do have problems uh, will find that they well, need all of them. these tests are available to anyone in this country in fact even outside this country and that's what i tried yeah. to put in my book to say look you know find find a gp who listen to you mm. and if they're not on the same page find somebody else i mean that's how shop with your feet the consumer has all the power in this country all the power, even though they feel they're being emasculated by the multinationals. So find someone who um, who's a listener. Not all the GPs will do things like you know genetic tests and and um, hair samples, but all the naturopaths, almost yeah. all of them, um, will. So they can do gene tests. They can ask. You can get the doctor ask politely to do the tests. Ask politely to have the results of the tests. Show them to the naturopaths um, who do these gene studies, who will often do a hair analysis, and they will put that together and come up with a game plan. They're actually very good at this. They're mm-hmm. heaps better at it than medical doctors mm. um, because they don't have to unlearn anything first. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So, in your, if you can just do a quick wrap up of your book. So, where can people find that, and um, what's it called? It's called inflammation, the disease we all have. Mm-hmm. And when you read the the list of itises, um, you'll see that everyone has some inflammation. Yeah. It's it's a ubiquitous um, thing, although we don't necessarily think of it as painful. Um, so it's on Amazon um, as an ebook, and that. As I said, that has some advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is that it's not in a, a book you can, you know, sit on the toilet and read. <laughs> but, um, but but lots of people take their iPads. Yeah, <laughs> that's that. true. <laughs> um, so yeah, anything, any of these smartphones can read an ebook. A computer, any laptop, desktop can read an ebook. Uh, you know, the the yeah. tablets, the pretty much the, the device that people are listening on this yeah. podcast. You know? Yeah, it is. I was um. Yeah, so it's available yeah, it's ebook. If you look at, if um, I don't know if they have a special section on Amazon, but if you put Dr. Tabrizian inflammation ebook, you'll probably find it. It's all right, quickly. I can put a link on the um, Wellness Couch website as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I'd like to do is to get this information out to people so they can start stirring the pot because yeah, and that's what we're going to do. But as a group, you can, and then yeah. perhaps it, it'll be. A, 
you know, have one one patient after another coming and asking for these tests, mm. the GPs will realise that perhaps it's actually an important thing to understand why people get sick and yeah. we shouldn't just pat them on the head and say, we don't know, Sonny, because yeah. um, that's not actually true. I have to say when I first started going to my GP who's a friend of mine and she's absolutely lovely, when I first started taking my son to her for his OCD problems, um, the idea of changing his diet was totally foreign to her and she, if I mentioned it, she would quickly change the subject and mm. after six months of me working really hard on healing his gut, I took him back in and the difference was was major and she got a student doctor in and said, you need to hear about this diet. So it really does, it can change their minds when they see that it's working. It is a shame that we have to push it though. It's, yeah. um, you know, you would really want your healthcare provider to be the person who, you know, yeah. is doing is doing that. Do you, do you see any movement in that area, uh, Dr. T? Au fait with the terminology that your patients are using, and if they're That's talking right. about gluten-free, nightshades, dysbiosis and that, be a bit more savvy about the terminology. Um, are you seeing any change in the area or the culture within the medical community? Oh, definitely. Community? Okay. It's well, a very – having, I suppose, gone through what I did, go through with no apparent answers at the time and then, you know, discovering things by my own in, from a sceptic's point of view, <laughs> I realised that the only way to change things is conquest by subversion. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that <laughs> that, um, that uh, words are more powerful than bullets. Yeah. Um, although there are some people who disagree. I think the Americans, for instance. But, uh, <laughs> got to think about the Americans. <laughs> but yeah, words are more powerful than bullets. And so what I did was I thought, um, you know, if you wanted to make a change, the, to, the way to do it is to do it through the – you're not going to do it through the medical profession. Words and bullets, Dr. T. I think mm. put them together. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the best thing is to empower your patients and then they tell someone else who then finds your information who then tells someone else. So mm. it's like multiple ripples in a pond and eventually the whole pond's sort of jumping, you know. And that's the way I looked at this is to, you know, information is more powerful in that sense. So that's why I wrote my books and trying to to change the world that's from good. my desk. Well, that's good. You're doing a good job because I keep hearing about your books so I have to get I, I really need to read that information when I still haven't got to it. But um we should probably finish up because it's an hour or so that we've been chatting. Um, we have, yes. <laughs> and you need to go eat your dinner. <laughs> I haven't cooked it yet. Oh, you haven't cooked it yet. Okay. You need to go cook your dinner. Um yeah. so thank you so much for all that and we'll probably think of a zillion more questions to ask you, won't we, Fuad? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, would <laughs> love to have you back Good on the show. Good bad again. thing, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, we 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 can so think much. of heaps more things to um, pick your brains on. So, you in a oh my god, the amount of questions I have in my head now. I know is, because uh, yeah. because it's there was that do. was a lot. That was a lot of information. But everything is connected to everything, Joe. Yeah. Like I know when I was looking, I had got because I. Um, had some time in the country. I had um, other Weybridge officers. So I used to get to talk to the farmers. Mm -hmm. And I realised that, you know, um, veterinary science is 
akin to, you know, similar to, you know, medical science mm -hmm. and veterinary science is, you know, akin to farming and farming is, you know, related to soil science and soil science is related to chemistry and chemistry is related to biochemistry and biochemistry is related to medicine and then medicine is related to, to veterinary science. And yeah. the whole thing, it's no information just should flow from any of those freely, but it doesn't. The problem in our society now, you mentioned the word holistic and everyone starts rolling their eyes because... Yes. Uh, no, even I roll my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I am rolling my eyes. <laughs> we were doing a video conference. Yeah, and but, that's a really painted word, isn't it? Yeah, it that's is, it. Um, there's so many words that have been changed over the years that but, have different connotations. But you're right, it's all connected. Yeah. So. Well, uh, yep. Dr. T, really amazing. Uh, I, I love this podcast. I'm really, really happy to have had you on the show. And I, I'm very excited to have you again if, if you would come again and have another uh, quirky chat with us. Yeah. We've covered a lot of ground. I mean, there's probably some things you want to have maybe more. Dig deeper into. I think it's important to understand how farming practice and horticulture has changed health as well. That's, That's a good something point, yeah. Because a lot of my patients are farmers and horticulturists or scientists mm. in that area, yeah. and they tell me stuff. I'm just horrified. Yeah. Yeah, it's the amount of uh, pesticides and uh, just that alone, what it does yeah. to the soil, and then what it does to our guts, mm. and the, you know, the, like they're actually breeding bacteria that is resistant to these pesticides now, and uh, they won't yeah. they won't be able to grow the food. I mean, that's yeah. that's going to be a big problem. The so, book that I would recommend on this subject is The Omnivore's Dilemma. I don't know if you've uh, heard of it. Yeah, yeah. Michael yeah. Pollan. It's a beautiful yeah. Yeah. He nailed that whole thing really quite well. Um, and it's and he was uh, – the most the poignant line in there was that, that cat, you know, cattle farmers should be grass farmers. And yes. biodiversity is sustainable, but monoculture is not. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we're already seeing the, the world deserts forming because of the, these monocultural practices, and it's just uh, yeah. amazing. I think uh, one really cool thing, if, you, if you're interested in, in that side of things as well, um, there's um, Alan Savory. He, he has a really great um, talk around using uh, cattle to bring back desert land and t turn it into yeah. uh, agricultural I've heard about that. yeah and um yeah it's it's just when you start using nature the way that it, it is intended Tended, to be yeah. used mm. and then you see it will heal itself and yeah. you know we are part of nature so if we go back to those kinds of practices then we we should expect ourselves to heal hopefully before we're too far gone mm. there is a farm up here that i've been to on a um organic food tour that does all that kind of thing with the cattle so fascinating i was amazed just listening to them talk about it all mm. but yeah this it's not very well known no i guess everyone thinks can i make money out of this yeah exactly <laughs> and and quickly <laughs> mm. that's the bottom line and yeah. cost consultants in farming are often um uh, fertilizer company employees and yeah. they don't necessarily give the information that's best for the environment mm. yeah mm. Well, we're getting on to another subject now. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all connected. You know, it is. The, what they do there affects us here. Yeah. And probably the, the one person that stands out the most is a guy called Dr. Albrecht. I think he's from Missouri in America. Mm. And he said that if you get these 
base cations right, sodium, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. If you get those four things, four things right and in balance, your population will be healthier. Mm. And that created a system of um, soil analysis called the Albrecht method. I don't know if you've come across that. Mm. But uh, it saves water, improves output just by doing those four things. Yeah. Mm. But some farmers will do it. You Probably the ones that you meet, if you mention the Albrecht mm. method of soil yeah, analysis, they they're like, oh, yeah, we use that. Yeah. We'll have to get into that on another oh, podcast, won't we? Another, <laughs> yes, we will. Maybe send some, <laughs> some what you want, perhaps some random questions, yes. almost like you did today. Yes, <laughs> like we did today. Well, we might go. We might uh, have our listeners ask you a few questions. Yeah, that might be a good so, idea. Yeah. They infrequently ask questions. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> they're always good. You're one of my accents. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a show that's do just uh, Dr. T, you know, with that, with, you know, with his hat off and see what happens. Yeah, that might be cool. <laughs> Dr. D was doing the most amazing impersonations before uh, the show started. Just yeah, so. Sorry, we didn't include them in the recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you never know answer next time you call. Got to prepare for it. Let's see how we do. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you so much. We'll let you go and um, we'll definitely talk to you again. And um, if anybody does have some questions for Dr. T, where would it be best for them to write them? I mean, they can just put them onto our Facebook pages if that's easy. You don't have a website or anything? Mm, I don't know. You don't know? (laughs) We can just get them to put them on. I've never had that question asked before. Well, most most um, people usually ask on on my – I've got a chat group and um, a Facebook page and Puad's got a Facebook page. So if people just ask on there if you've got a question and we can collate them all for the next podcast. Okay. Yeah, that's probably a good idea if you – or email them. You guys can – Often what you find us. is it would be similar questions. Yeah, that's right. We usually find that. Yeah. Yeah. We go through them. What's and, wrong uh, with wheat? Why does it keep having a go at wheat? <laughs> oh, they're used to us having a go at it. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, most of our listeners are uh, yeah, wheat-free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and, and don't forget to check out Dr. Igor's book, which is the information book, which I'll put the link to because that might answer a lot of the questions anyway. I think it will, and as we've got yeah. time to digest them as well mm. because it works in a sort of – it's sort of on a storyboard things okay. like a cartoon and so it's very linear well, it goes good. from one thing to the next to the next and okay. some people you have to approach it that way yeah and yeah it's excellent well thank you so much thank you um Fuad, for helping out there too and um hopefully we'll be back soon yeah you will yep. yeah okay thanks, thanks everyone. so much thank thanks everyone bye bye This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.